I think Tevez going to Juventus, what, what a coup that was for me. I mean, On a head-to-head -head battle, Atletico Madrid can do uh, more damage to Barcelona than the other way around. Either he's really blind or he's fixing the match. I, I can't see it any other way. I'm, I'm trying to get Sir Bob on my side here by saying City will win the Premier League. It, it is an upset. You would expect Man United to go and win there. Over a billion dollars was paid in transfer fees uh, between the clubs in, in Europe. It's football. It's damn football. Like Ferguson said, football. Bloody marvelous. Yeah, well, the celebration was, I can't believe I just scored against Mexico. Uh, at one point, Parma, I think it's only like 224 players under contract. Hey, they're going to throw me out of here, fellas. You're going to get me arrested on your show. If you're a serious talent, you're going back and you're playing for Santos. You, you know, you're going back to, to play for, like in Argentina, for River Plate or Boca Juniors. Or you're going to Europe. He looked like the Ryan Giggs of old. He was more creative than any player on the pitch. Um, he made Matt look stupid. He made Rooney look silly. Now, the Premier League is what the most exciting league out there. I think it's probably the best marketed league without a question. When you look at the draw for the, the Champions League, you kind of say, well, all the pieces kind of fell into place for everybody except City. I am your host, Joe Ucello. Sir Bob, Mike Orr. My co-host, Rob Rojas. My trusted co-host, Ben the Machine. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode 258 of Low Limit Football on this 14th of October, 2019. I'm your host, Joe Ucello, and tonight, Claudio Ranieri has a new job as the head coach of Sampdoria, while Rudy Garcia is in charge now at Lyon. Belgium, Italy, Russia, and Poland all punched their tickets to Euro 2020, with Belgium and Italy doing it with perfect records so far. MLS gets ready to kick off the 2019 playoffs this weekend. Manchester United eye two Serie A strikers in the January window, and we're going to discuss all of that and much, much more with two incredible guests, Mr. Elijah Newsom from Coming Out Newcastle and freelance football writer Mr. Christian Hennage, who will both be joining us momentarily. Let me get my co-host in here, so, Mr. Roberto Rojas, how are you, my man? Very well, Joe. Very well. It's been a, it's been a kind of an interesting weekend, I think, especially for you, Joe. Mm. Obviously, your Sunday wasn't exactly as planned no. uh, for your American sports team. No, it kind of sucked. <laughs> so, you know, and I, and I was on such a great roll. I, you know, I had I had Yankees winning game one um, with a little help from VAR. Right? We talked about that. And 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 if my Cowboys can do it and my Yankees can do it on Sunday and make a full clean sweep of the weekend, it would have been an absolute perfect weekend. Italy punches their ticket to the to the the Euros, you know, and did it. Although it was a little lackluster in the first half uh, against Greece, the second half was much much better. So you know, here we are. I, we've got the perfect weekend brewing, and then Sunday died, <laughs> and it's just it, it is you know as a sports fan that's that's the trials and tribulations right you you win some you lose some literally you know yeah but you my friend are going to your first baseball game huh yeah i'm excited uh, hopefully it happens it's supposed to rain on wednesday right yeah, if i'm not mistaken it is it is but hopefully like you said it happens and hopefully uh you can bring a little luck uh, a little beginner's luck to my new york yankees and get that game four win. our our new york yankees. our yeah, new york your... yankees yes sir absolutely i'll have my aaron judge jersey on I'll be ready to go. Trust me. It'll be Wednesday night. I, jersey. I might as well get a jersey if I'm going to get one. I might oh. as well get Judge. Oh, Glaber Torres. Get Glaber Torres. Yeah, yeah. He's, hey, he's only 22. I know, I know. So I'll, I'll, uh, I've got pool that night. I've got to play pool. So while I'm playing pool, I'll be doing it in my Judge jersey. So hopefully it'll bring me a little bit of luck. So, um, we're going to do a little bit of a of a departure tonight uh, for the show from normal. Normally we'll give you opening thoughts and a bunch of other things. But we had such a great, great, great interview with both our guests that that is going to be the bulk of the show. And we kind of covered everything we wanted to talk about, too. The only thing we didn't probably talk about, and, and you want to make this quote-unquote opening thoughts, let's do it. Um, real quick, Rob, I, I mentioned in the monologue that Man United are eyeing two Serie A strikers. Those two strikers are uh, Christoph Piantek and Mario Mandzukic. Um, they're eyeing both in the January window. Now, uh, supposedly... Mandzukic has a deal in place uh, at Manchester United, and really what they're trying to agree on is the transfer fee. Piontek, I don't see it. I don't, you know, and I'd love to call Matt Santangelo right now 
um, and ask him his opinion. But I don't see Piontek happening, even though he's struggling a little bit this season. But now with, with Milan making the switch over to uh, to Stefano Pioli, um, they've gotten rid of uh, Giampaolo. You know, I think things are going to get better for Piontek, and I think they'll be more than happy to keep him around. What are your thoughts real quick about Piontek and or Mandzukic? Yeah, I don't think Piontek leaves, honestly. I think he's settled over there in Milan. And for Mandzukic, I mean... At this point, yeah, he's got to go. I mean, he might as well, yeah. yeah. They're struggling. He hasn't. And he hasn't gotten Juventus into a match. To, oh, oh, Juventus have to balance the books as well. So True. it's kind of a win-win. In a yeah, way. I would agree. I would agree with you as well. So I hate to see him go because he's such a warrior. But at the same time, if you're riding the bench, you're not playing. It's one of those underrated players on my side, Joe. One of those underrated players. I think when yeah. his career comes to an end, I think he will be looked at as as one of those like underrated players. Maybe not as big and flashy as the other strikers of his era, yeah. but definitely up there. I agree. I agree. And versatile compared to some of the other strikers exactly. over there. So, you, my friend, have trivia tonight. So, if I do. you wouldn't mind doing the honors. Yes. So I'm going to do a different approach this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the last few weeks, uh, I think it was from Kara Head, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. She was posting a tweet of the top four uh, teams in the Bundesliga in the season that you were born in. And there was like a bunch, there was a thread and all. So with that being said, Joe, mm-hmm. I'm not asking you for the top four, but I, I am going to ask you this. In the season that I was born, 97-98, I was born in December 1997, so it technically puts it into that season. Right. Uh, Who won won each of the top five leagues and the Champions League in the 97-98 season? So I need six names. Wow. Oh, that's going to be tough. I'm going to totally spitball it, but I'll give it a shot. I'll definitely give it a shot, and we'll, uh, we'll definitely bring you that. Uh, at the end of the show. So, um, again, like we said, a uh, little departure from tonight's show. Uh, we did have two amazing guests, and, and we ran the gamut of talking about everything from racism to Newcastle to MLS to, you know, U.S. Men's National Team a little bit. So, without further ado, I bring you the interview with Chris Hennage and Elijah Newsom. Joining us now on Low Limit Football from Coming Home Newcastle is Mr. Elijah Newsom and freelance football writer, Mr. Chris Hennage. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining us tonight. We really, really appreciate you guys coming on the show, and it's great to catch up with both of you again. I want to jump into the the current events and what happened today in the Bulgaria England matchup with uh, with the with the racist chance. Uh, apparently, with the FIFA rules that are in place, there's a sort of a three strike rule that if uh, if a player notices it first off. They notify the referees. The referee knows, notifies the fourth official. Second time it happens, there is an announcement made over the PA system. And the third time it happens, the referee can and should pull the teams off of the pitch until things are corrected. I believe it got to strike two today uh, is what happened in that Bulgarian match, which is it's disgusting. It even gets to that point to begin with. Um, Chris, I want to go to you first because I know your Twitter today was very, very active with um, with reaction and statements about this. And the one that I really love, the one you just retweeted about uh, about 30 minutes ago was uh, the Bulgarian coach Balakov had accused England of having a bigger racism problem than his own country with Raheem Sterling answering to that. Um, not sure about this one, chief. So, I mean, obviously, it, it's it's insane that that he's sitting there and just saying, you know, no, there's there's a much bigger problem in England. I mean, I granted, there's a problem all over Europe. I think with this, I don't think it is strictly isolated to Bulgaria or Italy, as we've seen most recently, or France or or England. Um, I think it's it's you know, all the way around. So I want your thoughts on, on some of these comments that we've seen, what happened today. Um, it certainly didn't affect the, the English side as they won six nil. So, um, what were your thoughts on the whole racism part today? I think on a fundamental level is it's a disgrace. Um, the protocol, if you want to call it that from UEFA in terms of how you deal with the situation, I think is pretty flawed too. Um, I think it wasn't even, properly implemented today i think there were instances in the second half of more abuse that was sort of ignored or uh sort of swept under the rug i think just to keep the game on um i think you have to correct this with chronic chronic punishment there's no there is no other uh recourse for it um whether that's financial to the football association whether that's playing behind closed doors 
I, th- I think there has to be something greater than these respect campaigns that unfortunately feel very hollow from UEFA because they are just words at this point. And, and it's clear from some of the signage that popped up in the stands today that actually for these people, they don't care. They actually go vehemently against this idea of respect and tolerance towards others. And it's it baffles me how we got to that situation because from what I could see, Bulgaria had a black player themselves. And, and it's so lacking in just logic on a very fundamental level that I think we need to actually push past something. And we, we can't sit on our hands and simply um, castigate those who clearly do it without fear of recourse um, and, and move, move forward on it. Yeah, no, absolutely, uh, Chris. I think that's just uh, an issue that has been going on really, you know, just said uh, not just in England or in Bulgaria or in Italy, but across the world. I mean, you know, Elijah, I mean, I don't know if you did see the game or saw the comments that have been going on on Twitter. I mean, I just want your take on the situation. And, you know, what do you think is next now after seeing the events that happened uh, today in Bulgaria? Yeah, I mean, um, this this topic of racism in soccer is actually one of the first things that drove me to start taking academia and research seriously. It was the first ever kind of research project I undertook, and it is a loaded issue. And the long long like long story short, uh, it seems as if all the governing bodies involved, whether it be FIFA or UEFA, uh, mostly UEFA, um, have kind of placed it really more on the players and teams to police themselves rather than taking action as the governing body. So whatever action they take is never enough and it doesn't ever prevent anything. And so it's, it's something that's, it needs to be fixed. And the only way to fix it is for UEFA to look internally and examine their own policies and and recognize that whatever they're doing is, is not enough because I mean, this is, this is, I mean, probably the, off the top of my head, probably the eighth or ninth racist incident we've had this year. And since the seasons begin, I mean, if you want to include every single thing Lukaku's had to endure while he's in Italy, I mean, this is probably number five or six since August. So it, it's been, it's, it's something that needs to be addressed. And I mean, I don't have the answer to that. I mean, I'm, I'm just a mere 22 year old soccer blogger. Like I don't have the answer to that, but I'm sure UEFA has the resources to to actually pull together and figure out how do we address this issue, especially with so many former players and managers weighing in on on how they think that UEFA should handle it. No, definitely. Um, I think uh, it's um, it's an issue that has to really take it into part of the of the governing bodies, be it FIFA, be it UEFA, whatever that may whoever that may be, and I think try to settle a, a plan that will indeed work out. Um, obviously, now since we both have you gentlemen here, uh, we it, it'd be remiss to not talk about uh, Newcastle. Obviously, <laughs> in a season that has already been through a lot of roller coasters right now. I mean, you know, coming off a, a win against Manchester United, uh, thanks from the the debut goal uh, from Matty Longstaff, the the brother of Sean Longstaff. Um, I actually want to jump into Chris here for this one, actually, because you know, obviously, what we've seen so far in Newcastle have been a bit of dark. Um, avenues of what we've seen under Steve Bruce but clearly it's been kind of a uh, kind of a, a bright light to see the Longstaff brothers perform I, mean, I just want your takes of seeing these uh these two kids from the academy shine in the um on the big set on the big stage yeah sorry I, th- I think it's it's always special when a pair of lads from from Shields make it to the first team and and perform as well as they did I think it's funny almost in comparison to the Leicester game is as good as Newcastle were, I thought Manchester United were, were pretty atrocious from back to front. Um, slow, turgid in attack and, and pretty awful on transition. Um, I think what this says to me in a, in a much wider context, and this was a sentiment that, that Rafa Benitez, who I think is, is still a little bit casting a shadow over the club, in a, in a I would say, a positive way if you're anti-Mike Ashley, um, is that the academy is producing and it's... It's not an academy that is fueled with investment. It's not an academy that is given the best resources, um, even relative to its, its competition, both, I would say, regionally in the Northeast, but also nationally as well. And yet here we are with 
Matty Longstaff, who again is has had a fantastic debut and I think has shown a potential that could be really interesting to watch for for the rest of the year. I'm always very um, observant of, of what Chris Hutton said when Andy Carroll burst through that you know he's going to have good days and bad days and we we have to manage both equally and and that's where I think Matty will be at at the minute. It's about giving him the right platform in the same way that Sean had a great platform last season and a structure that made the most of his skills and I think masked one or two of the weaknesses as well. I think that, for me, will hopefully inspire kids in the academy now, but perhaps even those a little bit higher up to think, yeah, you know what? This region has a a tremendous history of producing footballers at the the top level. Gascoigne, uh, Beardsley, Waddle, Shearer, Carrick, you, you can really just reel them off um, right back to the 66 World Cup side with, with the Charlton brothers. Let's see more of that come through. Let's give those players an opportunity to show what they can do and, and really install a bit of pride in, in this team. No, definitely. Now, you know, Elijah, you know, we also need to talk about two players who, you know, have been kind of hot and cold, if you could say, I mean, within comparison to this player uh, that did indeed score. Uh, the other one has not, despite a lot of hope that has been given on him. And the two players that I'm obviously mentioning are Miguel Miron and Joelington. Obviously, Joelington comes in as their most expensive signing, uh, really getting into a, a squad just to replace uh, Salomon Rondon. You know, he did get his his goal against Spurs, but really has not been as expected uh, in a way that we thought he would end up. And obviously with Miguel, you know, there have been some debates about whether or not he really is able to cut it out into the Premier League. There have already been some debates about uh, his attitude towards uh, diving as well. I mean, I just want your take so far of the start of the season for both these players and how they can improve moving on uh, in the next few matches. I mean, you you can't really fault um, these guys themselves uh, totally because they're having to play underneath a manager who doesn't actually have tactics. Um, I mean, Steve Bruce, he if you've watched all the matches for Newcastle up until last week, there was no actual plan, it seemed, at times. Um, and whether or not that was the fault of his own or just a miscommunication from him to the players, but that's something that you just don't see at any other Premier League side. Even the worst of teams at least have some sort of plan on how they're going to attack the game and they're going to have some sort of tactics that they employ. And Steve Bruce just, he hasn't, he hasn't had that to this point. And the only reason Newcastle looked great um, in the Manchester United game is uh, the week prior, I think it was a Thursday um, reporters asked Steve Bruce about his tactics because they had once again come under scrutiny after absolutely getting destroyed by Leicester. Um, and he said that the players aren't used to his tactics, so he's going to revert back to Rafa Benitez's tactics. He said this. It's on the record. It's verbatim. He literally admitted that he's just going to copy Rafa Benitez's tactics. Lo and behold, it worked. Uh, Miguel had uh, one of his best games so far this season. He was able to find a lot of space. Um, he should have scored. Um, I think it's part of it's gotten to his head. He should have scored, should have scored twice, honestly. Um, it's gotten to his head, and... Um, and Joel Linton had more of the ball and was more involved in the in the counterattack than he has been all season. So I think it's really just a tale of of the tape. Honestly, it, it's about putting the players in the positions um, where they can actually succeed, rather than just throwing them out there and telling them to do whatever. And part of that starts with playing Miguel on the right side of the pitch. Well, not literally the right side, but the correct side of the pitch, um, and put him on the left or put him in the middle. Something uh, rather than playing, putting him at a position where he hadn't played before. Um, until this season. And then with Joel Linton, it's about giving him opportunities to score. I mean, uh, yeah, we paid a lot of money for him, but he also hasn't had any service. No ball swung into him, and he's a big guy. So you have to at least provide him with service. And that's something we haven't seen from Newcastle yet. I mean, a little bit during the Manchester United game, there were chances that they were creating, um, but I'm not going not gonna to put too much faith in that. And as for the diving thing, um, I think it's interesting. I think part of it is that in the MLS, you would get those calls just due to bad refing and the fact that he's a an elite player in MLS. And so there were times in Atlanta where it was like Miguel was uh, diving a little bit. But I think part of it now is more frustration. I mean, he's even doing it in matches where I really didn't expect him to do it. Like um, when they when he was playing for Paraguay, he, he dove then and got sent off for for diving. And I'm just that's not the Miguel I'm used to seeing. So. Um, it, it is interesting. I wonder if it's a mental thing 
I honestly, I don't have all the answers regarding that. I mean, I think the best thing for him is to get a, a goal or an assist and, and somewhat soon. Now, Chris I, and, and um, Elijah, I want to jump in here real quick. And, Chris, I want to throw this question at you first. Given Steve Bruce, given the big change from, from what Rafa Benitez brought to them last year, is Steve Bruce – I mean, I've, I know we've seen it once with the, with the result against Manchester United on the weekend – is Steve Bruce capable of wholesale changing his tactical approach to to basically going towards more of a Rafa Benitez type style of play, or is this just a one and done flash in the pan and and we're going to revert back to the old stuff and the plain old uh, Steve Bruce that we all know? I think to to kind of piggyback off of what Elijah just said. It's difficult to know what Steve Bruce wants to do. I don't see an idea. I don't see an identity. It's, it concerns me that Isaac Hayden is coming to the side and saying this isn't working. That's Look, I, I covered a, a fair few games during Benitez's tenure, and he was fairly vocal with the players in terms of adjustments and, and small tweaks. But I didn't see such an ambiguity about what they were trying to do. I could could always tell how are they trying to get the ball from front to back? How are they trying to score goals? What's their approach to limiting the opposition? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that with Steve Bruce. What I've seen is two victories in which actually they did kind of lean back on on last season where it was about a back three. It was about killing space in their own half and then using that pace with Miguel or Alain Maximan and transitioning very quickly up the field. When Steve Bruce has tried to I'm going to say employ his formation. The weight of responsibility on Miguel specifically is atrocious. He, he's asking him to essentially pick the ball up deep and then provide the finishing touch as well, or the creative touch. That wasn't what we saw in the first six months of his Newcastle career. What we saw was someone who brought the ball through central areas or occasionally down the left and essentially put the ball into the path of Solomon Rondon or Ayose Perez to finish things off. That was... That was how it worked best, I think, for all three of them. And I think that's why we're seeing a little bit of, of Miguel's struggle. And it's the same with Joelton. I think a little bit like Josie Altador almost when he came to Sunderland. They've looked at him and thought, yeah, he's over six foot. He's a big guy. We can throw a ball at him like we would Andy Carroll. I think he's a much more technically proficient player than that. I think he's much more about being part of the build-up, about linking with his teammates on the floor and creating good opportunities. So... I think for for me the the biggest shock with with Bruce's approach is that he's essentially said I can't get these players to play the way I want them to play because I think well have you really tried has there really been a heavy detailed session in which you've given them some kind of structure to work through and and be more expansive I I just don't know if I've seen that so it's it's hard to really invest in in what he's saying and, and Elijah, I want to I want to throw that over to you for your reaction because I I agree with what Chris has said that Steve Bruce is basically going to do what Steve Bruce wants to do, and you're not going to see much of that change. I mean, we see ebbs and flows here, you know, a match here, a match there, and and when he does do it, it works, and and we've seen it, and and you for someone that that was watching. Uh, you know Miguel Almiron when he was in his Atlanta days and and what he did with Joseph Martinez now you know turning around last season linking up with Rondon linking up with Iosi Perez uh, you know we don't see it nearly as much so I wanted your reaction to what Chris said as well because I Chris I agree with you 100 percent yeah I mean I would I'd like to also say that bit about Joelinton is is completely true about him being a much more involved player um uh, in terms of the build-up, there were times in in the Bundesliga where he'd even drop back into a number ten type role because he has the ability to to play some decent passes, the ability to dribble real well, and he's a technically proficient player. And you you saw flashes of that when he was um kind of called upon to hold the ball up and then kind of also help start the attack by even by either um, sending out wide to Miggy or sending out wide to Saint Maximin. Um, Another thing I would say is that Steve Bruce has kind of dug himself into a hole here. He came in um, and uh, came in and, and basically said, uh, "These I'm excited with the players that we're bringing in. These are the players I want. And essentially he said that, like, this was going to be fine. They're going to play attacking football with the players that he wants. And these are the players he wanted. When everyone knew that the the signings of St. Maximin and Jolinton were being, they were being completed and talked about since March. So these were not players Steve Bruce requested. And to be honest, the only player it seems like Steve Bruce actually um, brought in that he wanted uh, was was Andy Carroll. 
And so uh, these are not the players Steve Bruce uh, wanted in order to play his his style of football. And he said that these were the players that he wanted and the players that he was excited about and bringing in. And then he went around and then flipped the script and said that, no, actually, these players are not the ones that um, are going to fit my sort of uh, attacking style of football. And it's, it's all a bit confusing because even when we see Steve Bruce's tactics, they're not really that attacking and they're not really tactics. So it, it's something that begs the question, does Steve Bruce actually know what he's doing at times? And it's, it's kind of bad when your only two wins are basically copying the Rafa Benitez tactics. Now, Steve Bruce, I hope that he sticks with the Rafa Benitez tactics because I think it makes sense if he wants to save his job to just kind of do, you know, stick with the five in the back, try to play the same and ask the players to do what something they're already good at. And I do think that, um, this was the first match we got to see um, the front three that Newcastle fans have been drooling over since the summer of Joel Linton and um, Miguel and uh, Alan St. Maximum um, all playing together at the same time. It happened once before in the season, and then um, St. Maximum got injured probably like under 10 minutes in, so we didn't get to see the full potential. But this was the full 90 minutes where we were able to see how they were able to work, and it and it puts less pressure on Miguel. Like He was able to find more space because so much attention is being focused on St. Maxman and his his ability on the ball. And same with Jolinton. Like, because they're both rapid and they're both able to join him on the counterattack, there's no worry for him when he's, you know, he's not all alone on the counter anymore. So part of that is them playing together, and part of that is changing tactics Will it help Steve Bruce, you know, if he sticks with the Rafa tactics? Yes. My fear is that he sticks with them and then he starts winning and then he gets cocky and reverts back to his whole tactics. And that is that will be the day I'll say Newcastle are, are definitely screwed. Agreed. If, if I can as well, I think I think there's a bit of a, a chronic revisionism and, and, and almost hypocrisy about the way that Rafa's tactics were interpreted and, and Steve Bruce's. I remember Gary Neville being really critical about the possession stats under Rafa Benitez when they played Man City at home and lost 1-0 and, and called it an embarrassment and, and things like this. Steve Bruce is in a similar ballpark in terms of possession, and I'm not seeing that same criticism levelled at him. And at the same time, yeah, you know, there were games where it wasn't always pretty. The Man City game springs to mind where they lost 1-0. A couple of games where I think Benitez obsessed over goal difference because he felt it was going to be influential towards the back end of the season. But he did also beat Man City. He also scored a wonderful team goal against Huddersfield. I remember watching Fabian Shah run through Cardiff's back line from, from pretty much his own half. I think there was a little bit more flourish to Newcastle as time went on than, than some wanted to acknowledge because I think there's a, a long-standing reputation for many years to be ultra-conservative and, and someone who can only play this quite defensive way. And I'm not sure if that's entirely fair. I would agree. I would definitely agree. Gentlemen, I want to I wanna actually come across the pond and over to the United States and, and look at something, a little bit of a different situation. I want to look at the Serginho Dest uh, situation for a second. Um, obviously, the 18-year-old was brought onto the team for a couple of friendlies at, at the last camp in September. We come into CONCACAF Nations League, matches that would have been competitive matches that would have tied uh, Dest to the U.S. men's national team. Obviously, he's doing, doing, he's doing very, very well at Ajax at the moment. Um, but Dest did not come over, and I don't know if he was not asked or if he refused. Um, seeing some comments uh, from a writer from, from an article from Simon Cooper and ESPN um, stated that he he wanted to think longer about both options, whether he was going to go to the Netherlands or play for the United States. Um, it's an option that he's going to. It's a decision he needs to make for the rest of his life, and so he only wants to make that decision once, and he wants to make the right decision. Um, I'm going to go to you uh, first. Actually, Rob, I'm going to go to you first with this question. Um, is this something where, you know, we've seen we, we've seen uh, the United States not do a good job in terms of keeping players that have had dual nationality um, uh, recently? Jonathan Gonzalez is the one that went over to Mexico. That's kind of the one that kind of sticks in everybody's brain right now. But Dest is certainly the, the latest and greatest version of that. Is the U.S. still not doing enough to keep that particular dual national player um, and allowing you know some of those top top quality players to escape to other nations? Yeah, it's a weird situation. It's kind of actually you could probably pinpoint a bit of a, a few similarities between Jonathan Gonzalez and Sergio Dust. Obviously, both uh, are dual um, citizens. Both have dual citizenship. 
one plays uh, for their parents or at least where they grew up, uh, country that they're in, you know, Ajax for, for Dest and Gonzalez at Monterrey. So, yeah, I feel like there is some sort of an issue here about trying to convince these players to, to play for the national team. I think given the fact that the United States have been able to, you know, show him something from youth level, be it U17 and U20, uh, to him, you know, playing in the U20 World Cup, playing the U17 World Cup, um, giving him that opportunity shows that he is, that, the, that you would think that there is that kind of um, love for, for, for the national team. But when it comes into the senior side, it's a different story. I, I think my guess of what could indeed happen is that assuming that Burhalter is trying to keep him up for the qualifiers. Now, mind you, that is still in a couple months. We still have a long time to go. But, you know, if that is the case, then this is this is where the Dutch, if they are going to take it in and steal it, you know, they might as well go for it. I mean, the fact that they're going to get someone who is 18, who has already demonstrated the talent that he has at Ajax, you know, for him to get that, I for them to get him, uh, would be a huge coup, and, and you know you have every right. I mean, you know, there's a few advantages for him. You know, the fact that he doesn't have to make all these long travels, uh, inter- intercontinental travels from the Netherlands to North America, whereas here for for the Netherlands, you know, he's based off playing in the in the Nations League qualifiers for Euro or World Cup. You know, he's staying in this continent, so there is that advantage. I mean. I just, I mean, for me personally, I mean, obviously, you think for a lot of us here, we'd want to see him play on the national team for the United States. But this is just a weird situation. And mind you, he's only 18. And the fact that he's already giving this opportunity, I mean, you would you would think that he, he would stick with the United States, given that he's already they've already gave him the opportunity to play at senior level. I mean, I'll go to Chris first with this one. I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? And, you know, is this a situation that we're seeing a, another Jonathan Gonzalez in the making? I think it's a it's a really convoluted situation, least of all because trying to pick an international team is fraught with difficulty because, you know, I mean, I just saw even Rakitic talk about it fairly recently that he grew up in, in Switzerland and Switzerland gave him and his family so much, but in his heart he felt Croatian. Now, emotion comes into it. To be frank, I've heard instances where financial aspects come into it you know are you more marketable as a a defender from this country or that country with Serginio I think honestly he's been so incredibly mature about this entire process about being very public and saying look I want to be patient I want to make the best decision and that's very difficult because the US has embraced him absolutely and they've I think they've tried to you know bring him through the youth system cap him at a senior level but he's also grown up in Holland. So there's an attachment there as well. And I think you can't fall into the trap of lecturing a young player about, well, why did you ever come to the US if you were just going to go to Holland? You just have to accept that there will be instances where you benefit from that situation and instances where you won't. And I think for the US specifically, it's difficult because there is a bit of a history with dual nationals, whether it's Giuseppe Rossi going to, to Italy or Aaron Johansson coming over to the US. It's, it's one that I think they've seen both sides of that coin and so it just because of a lot of sort of other elements about you know Americans in Germany and and just the global aspect of of Americans moving abroad this will always be a situation but I think it's it's a little bit too easy to just lump on the the federation who I do think have frailties and weaknesses that we need to examine and say well you could have done more you should have done more we just don't know that we we really don't I think there's every chance that you could have tried to cap him at the Gold Cup and he would have come to the same crossroads that he's at now where he does rightly look at it and say, this is a decision for the rest of my career. I can't reverse this. So where do I really see myself and where do I feel like I fit in? Yeah, definitely. And the fact that, you know, at, at his age and being so incredibly mature about this entire situation, which is really um, a career-changing decision, just gives us... Uh, much more respect to him in a way. I mean, you know, Elijah, this is a this is a weird situation as well. I mean, what are your takes on what is your take on the whole death situation as well? Yeah, I think it, it's it'd be it, it's it's easy to compare this to the Gonzalez situation, but it's just totally different for a, a few reasons. One, Jonathan Gonzalez uh, was that whole situation was happening 
um, probably at the weakest point in, in U.S. Soccer Federation uh, history up until this point. I mean, you've just not qualified for the World Cup. Um, you're in this this limbo of trying to figure out if you have a GM or, you know, of hiring a GM and, and figure out having a managerial search. And you have this, this limbo of, like, all these different random meaningless friendlies. And uh, Jonathan Gonzalez decides to uh, commit to the team in CONCACAF that is the best team in CONCACAF. And in the country where he has been playing with the guys he's been playing with, with the parents uh, who are also Mexican. Um, so it, it a lot of things are a little bit different. I mean, uh, it's kind of hard to choose between the U.S. and Mexico when one is going to the World Cup and one is going to be sitting and watching the World Cup. Uh, so you have that situation. And I do think that um, just due to the fragility of the federation at the time, they obviously were not doing their best to try to recruit dual nationals at the time because they did not know the future direction um, of the U.S. men's national team. On the other hand, with Dest, it does seem like the U.S. has done a much better job of, of keeping tabs on him. There's been talks of constant communication, and uh, he's obviously already made an appearance for the team. And um, like like we touched on earlier, I mean, this was a personal decision for him to, to wait it out because if you look at it from his perspective, he has the opportunity to play for uh, the Netherlands and um a wonderful generation of talent they have a lot of young talent that they do have right now that are dominating and a potential to to win a world cup with the netherlands on the other hand because there's so much good talent with the netherlands there's no guarantee that he'll even be on the world cup roster um and then you have the u.s who uh there could be something there could be something uh, special brewing there and it would be uh, towards the tail end of his career if the U.S. were ever World Cup contenders, but he's always going to be able to represent the U.S. regardless because he's likely going to be the best left-back available. He's likely going to make multiple World Cup appearances with the U.S., multiple CONCACAF appearances with the U.S., and so he's going to have the opportunity to really uh, further his kind of pedigree as a player um, with the amount of cash he'll have with the U.S., but there's no guarantee that he's going to be uh, in the future with the Netherlands. And I think there is a little bit more of a guarantee that he's in the future of the American national team. And that makes it all the more tougher. Um, it's do you, you risk it all and go for the glory or do you go with the safer option and, and play in, on, in the States? And I think that's, you know, for a lot of these, these above average dual nationals, I think that is kind of the question that goes through all their minds. And, and then, you know, some, some of them answer it one way, like Chris said, Giuseppe Rossi decided he was going to go to Italy. Aaron Johansson decided he was going to come to the United States. So we've we've seen we've seen that decision made over and over again, and we just kind of have to wait and see what Sergio Dust is going to do. Um, you know, I guess the next question is going to be, you know, European qualifiers going on right now for the Netherlands. Obviously, the Concacaf Nations League going on for the U.S. Somewhere in the middle here, someone's going to actually have to pop the question to him, for lack of a better term, and say, "Hey, why don't you come play for us in the senior side?" and, and kind of have him make a decision. I think that is going to be the only way we're going to truly find out in the end is when he, when he's actually put to the sword and, and asked, are you going to come play for us or not? And and then let him make that decision for sure. So let's, um, one more topic, gentlemen, and, and, and hopefully I, I do have you for a few more minutes. Is that okay? Um, Chris and Elijah, if I, if I've got you both for the same, you know, for one more topic. Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. Fantastic. I want to jump into MLS. Um, obviously decision day is behind us. We're now at the playoff level here and uh, and we're looking at some some pretty tasty matchups uh the first one i'll bring up and i'll go to you elijah is the rematch atlanta united versus new england revolution obviously that was played two weeks ago that was the game that um rob was in attendance at as well down in atlanta same bat time same bat channel really uh and atlanta united 3-1 victory no reason to see elijah any different uh results from here although you have to wonder New England has really turned this around, and I, and I think many will point to Bruce Arena as the reason this has turned around. Uh, you know, what do you feel that New England might do differently against Atlanta United, and how would Atlanta come, uh, combat that? I think this is a match that I think more Atlanta United fans are worried uh, about now uh, since the most recent news that occurred this weekend. It, Miles Robinson, uh, candidate mm. for Defender of the Year, uh, my boy from Syracuse. Syracuse Shout guy. out Syracuse. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, uh, he just got injured um, during training, uh, actually warming up during the Cuba match or something like that um, for well, while he was capped by the U.S. men's national team, which will likely see him not make an appearance. And uh, he's kind of been our saving grace, and he's been the kind of sweeper type defender that's uh, easily our best one-on-one defender, easily the guy who's, who tracks back the, the most and allows for 
our, whether we're playing four in the back or three in the back, the other center back or center backs uh, to, to get forward. And losing him is going to be tough. Um, I mean, you have a solid and capable defender, of course, and Michael Parkhurst, who is a, a Hall of Famer for sure, who's waiting in the wings. But the, the news of him uh, of him being injured definitely is something that is not sitting right um, amongst the the people here in Atlanta. And, of course, with our most recent week of sports, it just seems like everything is going against us at the moment. Um, as it pertains to New England, they had a lot of success on the counter. It seemed um, the back line for Atlanta still wasn't as organized as I'd like it to see. There were plenty of chances um, watching that match where uh, Brad Guzan uh, was found himself in a one-on-one situation a little bit too more uh, – a little bit too much uh, for my liking. Uh, just it seemed like they were easily um, getting balls over the top of our back line. I think they're going to keep trying to do that, try to beat us on the counter, um, allow us to have a little bit more possession. Because when Atlanta United play that possession style um, of football, it seems like the whole back line shifts up. And so if we lose possession at all, we're so vulnerable on the counterattack. So that's probably what they're going to try to attack, especially with our best defender being out. Okay. Um, Chris, I want to go to you for a little New York Red Bull reaction. Um, obviously, as your new resident of uh, the Empire State, uh, New York Red Bull were really in a position to win their last match against Montreal, set up that Hudson River derby that many would want against uh, NYCFC. Also, NYCFC probably looking across the river thinking that's the one team that we really have trouble with. You look across to the other side, we had an LA Galaxy LAFC option that was going to occur as well. That one actually came through, and if the Galaxy can find some way to survive Minnesota United, uh, which is not saying that they will, they seem to have LAFC's number. So, first off, the Red Bull. Is it concerning to you that they didn't take advantage of that last opportunity against a a Montreal team that they they should have easily beaten um, to set up that type of matchup that would have favored them? Or is this something that is kind of water under the bridge? They knew we were getting into the playoffs, and it was really much to do about nothing. And then I want to throw it over to the LAFC, um, LA Galaxy possibility, because LAFC's got to really look at that matchup as the one matchup that they probably don't want, but if they do get through, they feel that they have the the greatest chance of winning MLS Cup. What are your thoughts on both setups? I think I think for the Red Bulls, it's it's not a huge surprise that they fell to Montreal, and I say that because I think for them, they are much better in the underdog role. Um, I think you look at the pressing system that they employ, um, the sort of Red Bull system, I guess you would call it. I don't think they like to be in possession a lot. I don't think they like to have the expectation on them. I think it's much better when they can win turnovers high up the field and generate chances off the back of that. Um, I think in, a, in an odd way, that could make them a dark horse for the playoffs in the East because they're not the Supporter Shield champions this year. They're not near the top. It's it's NYCFC that are the big dogs in, in the East this season. Mm. Um, so I, th- I think they will be an interesting one to watch because it's another test for Chris Armas, who... Look, I think he's he's had a difficult season, probably quite an illuminating season as a coach, but not always a convincing one. Um, and I think this playoffs is an opportunity for him to show that, yeah, this this is the right person to invest in. Um, in terms of the West and, and the Galaxy and, and what have you, my, my truth is the only takeaway I have with, with the Galaxy is that it's kind of time for Zlatan to show up a bit. Mm. Um I mean, I wouldn't say that if I was stood in front of him for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know what, he's spent all season talking and, and for a period I could get on board with, with his sort of marketing vehicle that, that is his own identity. Um, but I think now is the time for him to show, yeah, you know, what, I, I am a winner. And, and I guess fire one back at the doubters who say, you know, what, a lot of those titles you won, you didn't have a lot of opposition on the other side of you. You weren't really in three, four horse races in some instances even two horse races um because i actually find the the counterbalance of carlos vela a lot a lot more charming than than zlatan this season because he hasn't come out and and run his mouth and talk he's just essentially played really great soccer and and look i'll caveat that by saying he's in a much better team man for man i think in terms of talent level and structure and and just foundation lafc are markedly better than than the galaxy this season um 
But I think what I found really nice about Carlos's situation is that for a lot of his career, he hasn't been consistent. He's someone that will fly high and then sink quite low. And you go back to when he was at Salamanca on loan from Arsenal and coaches talk about he could be a top 10 player in the world. But it's just does he have those intangibles of mentality and all of these things that are often the final ingredient for a player? Yes, MLS is, is not perhaps the the premiere of, of football in, in the world stage, but I still think there's something to be admired about the fact that he has broken records, that he's been truly sensational for pretty much the entire season. And, and you put that against the backdrop of him almost going to Barcelona at the start of the year and, and how that would have changed everything. I, I think whether it's the East or the West, you've got a fascinating story unfolding um, with, with the potential playoffs. Now, Rob, I want to come and ask you this question. If you recall, when uh, way back at the beginning of the season, we actually did our MLS preview with Mr. Hennage here himself. And if I remember correctly, I know I did, and I'm, I'm trying to remember your prediction, but if I remember correctly, both you and I picked LAFC to win MLS Cup this year. Um, I'm, I'm sticking to my pick, and I want to know your opinion. You know, for me... I think LAFC is good enough to get by the LA Galaxy. I think that even though LA Galaxy's had their number, that you know between Vela and Rossi and everything that they do as a team, um, they're more than capable of of getting past the Galaxy and getting that cup and really making this the greatest single season an MLS side has ever had. Um, I want your opinion, Rob. Is do you still think LA uh, LA Galaxy? I'm sorry, LAFC will will do it. Do you think there's another team? Will you get? Um, some type of inspired Joseph Martinez to maybe carry Atlanta United to back-to-back titles. What are your thoughts, Rob? Well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if you do see a final like a, like that of Atlanta versus and LAFC, that's really it. That, that really is the battle between the two teams. Who one that is going for the best record ever in MLS history, and one that has already done that. So, yeah, I mean, I think given the dominance that they've demonstrated on, on of all the teams in MLS, I think you'd have to pick LAFC. Uh, and I'll still stick to my guns and put them as the champion of the MLS Cup at the end of the season. Um, I just think that they've been just so wonderful. I think Carlos Vela has been really demonstrated on fire. He's been on fire recently. And, and, and you know, like Chris said, I think if, if there is a team that is going to step up to them and try to ruin them, it, it's going to be LA Galaxy. But at the same time, you know, this, these are the type of matches where players like Fasen Brahevic really need to to come forward and, and, and try to beat that. So I, I personally think I, I still I am going to stick to my guns and still pick uh, LAFC to win the MLS Cup uh, in the end of the season. Okay, yeah. Elijah, I'm, I want you to take your, um, your Atlanta United sunglasses off, and I want you to have a look at the entire playoff field, uh, where teams are playing, what's going on, and give me your uh, opinion as to who you think will win MLS Cup with this playoff field. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta say, I mean, LAFC definitely are are the, the clear favorites, but I think something that we, you guys have kind of touched on, but you have to also consider is that um, whoever LAFC plays first, they haven't beaten this season. They haven't beaten Minnesota. They lost Minnesota two 0 and they lost, and they drew with them one one, and they haven't beaten the Galaxy, of course, uh, since they've existed. So it's kind of the worst possible scenario for LAFC going forward, and that storyline is just going to mount a ton of pressure on them. And it's just going to be, can they, uh, can, can they succumb to that pressure? Are they going to be able to get past the two teams that they struggled with this season? I don't know if they can, then yeah, I'd say they're clear favorites to win because they'll, it'll be a home match for them. Um, obviously I'm going to go with Atlanta United to, to win the cup. I just think <laughs> a team's been there. They've done that. They know how to win the cup. They've got the swagger, um, and I think they're they're trying to win their third cup in a single year, which um, I feel like no one else in MLS has ever done. So I'm going to go with Atlanta United, but I, I'll say LAFC definitely look dangerous. But that first round matchup, whoever they have, is going to be a tough one for them. And just let's all pray that NYCFC lose early on because it's just we can't we cannot have an MLS Cup final or even a, an Eastern Conference championship at a baseball field. <laughs> oh, it's just, oh my gosh, that would be a disgrace, and we would get roasted. There's... But would it be funny for them to play at City Field, though? That'd be hilarious. I mean, it would be hilarious, but it also would suck, so. 
You know, there's 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 a part of me that actually wants that to happen to be a backdoor mockery of what's happened with that team in MLS. Why why they haven't built a stadium at all yeah. yet? Why, you know why there's been no movement on that? You know, in, in terms of no aggressive movement on it. I think. I think it would highlight, I, I mean, yeah, would it be a black eye to MLS? Yeah, but I think sometimes they need that black eye. Um, and I think that would that would be epic if that happened. Um, and, and I also want to, you know, echo back what you said about um, the fact that LAFC has not beaten these two teams in Minnesota United or the LA Galaxy this season. Um, I, I think that El Trafico, if that does come to fruition, would be a massive, massive focus. It, it would be the storyline that I think the networks would want. Um, Chris, I, w- I want to throw all of that into a ball and throw it over to you and get your thoughts on MLS Cup champion, the thoughts of playing in a baseball stadium, moving, you know, the NYCFC moving because the Yankees are playing in the playoffs. Get your thoughts on all of that. I, th- I think playing in a baseball stadium is a, it's a unique experience. Um, I can certainly remember players that I've seen either you know on television or even speaking to afterwards complain about the experience of it because it especially at yankee stadium it's just an odd situation the grass isn't all that even the pitch itself size-wise is not great um it makes for a challenge i think is is the right way to put it and yet atlanta united surpassed that challenge when when they won mls cup um i thought that um tata really managed the situation well um, and, and seem to use what we perceive to be the advantage to someone like New York City FC against them. Um, I think it, it obviously touches on the fact that NYCFC long-term need a home. Um, the the sort of demand that it has to be, I think, within the five boroughs is really tough. Um, I, I don't need to tell anyone that. But I think in terms of the the sort of the playoff picture for them and, and who wins it. <clears throat> yeah, I think AFC for me are still the favourites. I think we'll see how they handled that pressure. That's going to be, for me, their deciding factor. Um, the fact that there is an expectation on them now. They're, it's almost forgot how young they are, how, how close they are in their infancy. Um, and on the other side, I think in the, <clears throat> in the East, I, I look at NYCFC and I think, yeah, it's, it is very easy to point to the pitch and, and how that's helped them. But I do think Domi Teron has actually built a very functional and attractive side there. He's mm-hmm. given them an identity and a quality that um, I think a lot of teams would aspire to and, and almost admire. Um, I, I don't want to uh, annoy our fellow guests here too much <laughs> with, with talk of Atlanta United. I have slight reservations about DeBoer um, and how he adapts to, to situations. I think he came in with a very clear identity and then realized he had to change, which in fairness, I think he should have realized that at Crystal Palace or into Milan. But for me, the, the injury to Miles Robinson, I think, will play a significant deciding factor in, in how far they can go because I think he, he has. He's been absolutely fantastic. And, and credit to the club for kind of managing his development because it was very easy to throw missiles at the club for, for the fact he didn't play a lot in his first season. Agreed. Agreed. Gentlemen, I do want to thank you both for coming on the show, joining us tonight, and, and just really going soup to nuts on everything football. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Rob, I know you did as well. And we look forward to touching base with both of you gentlemen again very soon. Thanks again for everything. And that was Chris Hennage and Elijah Newsom joining us with some great, great topics to talk about. Rob, um, we're running a little short on time. I know we've got some exciting matches to to see the rest of the week because obviously we have the Euros still continuing. We have CONCACAF Nations League still continuing on. And then we get back into league coverage. So if you wouldn't mind giving us the matches of the week coming up, I would really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. But we will mention just a bit of international matches before we get back into league action. Uh, on Tuesday, we have two Euro qualifiers. We have Sweden taking on Spain and Switzerland against Ireland, both at 2.45 p.m. We go across the pond back to CONCACAF, where we have a, a little bit of a of a rivalry, if you can say. We have Mexico taking, sorry, we have Canada taking on the United States at 7.30, and after that, we have Mexico taking on Panama at 9.30. Heading into the weekend, back into league action. In Liga, we have Nice taking on PSG. On Saturday, we have, and this game is at 2.45, by the way. On Saturday, we go to the Serie A, we go to Lazio against Atalanta, in Spain, we have Atletico Madrid taking on Valencia at 10 a.m. 
And to wrap it off, we have Bundesliga action as Borussia Dortmund take on Borussia Mönchengladbach at 12.30 p.m. Then on Sunday, we have Manchester United taking on Liverpool at 11.30 a.m., the big derby, one, I guess we could say derby of rivalry in, in England. And then we go into the playoffs, Joe. We're going straight into the playoffs on Sunday. Minnesota United taking on L.A. Galaxy. Winner plays LAFC in the Western Conference semifinals. Going to be fantastic. And obviously, all the matches, uh, I believe, for... Uh... MLS Cup uh, on Sunday, but that's probably the the best one to highlight. Would be that particular one. Uh, we have. I'm sorry, actually, uh, Rob, I'm mistaken. We have four matches on the 19th, which is uh, which is Saturday, yep. and we have two on Sunday. But obviously, the LA Galaxy Minnesota United one is big because of everything that uh, that Elijah brought up with the fact that LAFC wait in the wings, trying to get that 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 best season of all time in the history of uh, MLS, um, but going to have to go through two teams that they really have proven that they can't beat. Um, so mm-hmm. it's going to be, you know, that's definitely the one to see who's the one that might get to knock off, uh, the prospective champ in this one. So Rob, uh, without much more on the docket here, we, uh, we owe the fans a trivia, que- uh, a trivia answer. So if you wouldn't mind giving me the question again. Yeah, absolutely. So going into off a, a tweet from Kara head who, who posted a tweet saying, uh, for basically telling people, what the top four of the Bundesliga was the season you were born in. I will give you that similar type of question, but I won't give you a top four. Uh, instead, I need you to give me, in the season that I was born in, the 97-98 season, I want you to give me the winners of each of the top five leagues and the Champions League. Okay. So the first one I'm going to try my hand at is the Serie A. Okay. And, and I'm going and, and, and I, again, I don't know. And, and, and obviously you and I make it a point that we don't go look these things up. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to give you AC Milan as the Serie A champion, thinking that that was the, the time where Baresi Maldini, um, you know, was that great, great Milan side. So I'm going to go with uh, AC Milan as the champion in, in Serie A. It, it's not AC Milan, actually. They okay. were 10th that season. Wow. Okay. I don't think it was Juventus. Well, it could be Juventus just because... They were they were in Champions League in '96. I, I mean, I'll, I'll give you one more guess. I'll give you Juve. Juve were the champions with 74 points. Wow. Okay. Um, I thought it might have been too far past, but okay. So Juve is the first one. I'm gonna go to the Bundesliga mm-hmm. and give you Borussia Dortmund. Borussia Dortmund finished tenth that season. Well, as well. I, well if, if this there. if this were a a pick the number ten team in each league, I am killing it right now. Um, I just hate to give you Bayern Munich as the option. So let's go with Wolfsburg. Wolfsburg finished 14th that season. All right, then you'll have to give me the the Bundesliga one. It's not Bayern Munich. Okay. It's not Schalke. It's not Hamburg. It's a surprise one for you, Joe. FC Kaiserslautern. Oh, Kaiserslautern. Okay. We are currently in the third division at the moment. I would not have gotten that. So let's go to to Ligue 1. And I'm okay. I'm gonna give you Lyon as my option there. Lyon finished sixth that season. Marseille then. They finished fourth that season. Oh, I'm getting better, but I I don't want to give you PSG, so I, I'm gonna limit myself to two guesses on each league, and then okay. let you give me the the champion. So I I, I didn't want to pick PSG. So uh, who do we have in Lyon? It's not PSG. They finished eighth that season. Mm-hmm. The winner of that league though was Lens. With nice. 68 points. Oh, wow. And they're in, what, they're in the second division, I think, right now, too. So uh, Yeah, they are. They're in Liga. <laughs> yep. They're in Liga, too. So let's do, uh, let's do La Liga. And mm-hmm. let's, uh, let's, let's pick uh, Los Blancos, Real Madrid. They finished fourth that season. And, and I don't want to give you Barcelona, so let's give you somebody like Villarreal. They weren't even in that league no, that season, Joe. All right. So who do we got? Is it Barca? It is Barca with seventy four uh, points. I, I just, you know, I don't want to pick the team. You know what I mean? It's just it. it feels yeah, wrong. but um, nine times out of ten, you you kind of have to. I know, no, I know. So EPL, I'm going to give you Manchester yep. United. It's not Manchester United. Okay. They finished second that season. Then I'm going to give you Arsenal. They finished seventy eight. That was Wenger's first title as manager of Arsenal. Oh, I got one right. Jeez, that's not bad. All right, Champions League. Um, see, and I don't, I don't know all my Champions Leagues. Winners, you know, back to back to back to back. So, if you tell me Barca won La Liga, I'm going to give you Barcelona as the uh, as the Champions League winner. It is not Barcelona. Okay. Um, Real Madrid. Yes, 
Real, Real Madrid. Madrid. Wow. And I wrote Juventus in the final. I wrote down Real Madrid. I actually wrote it down and I didn't want to give it to you. I, w- I wanted to give you Barca instead. So, really. so if you want to Real recap, Madrid. you want to recap the answer? Yeah, absolutely. So the top five teams that have won in the season that I was born, the 97-98 season, uh, we'll go for the Champions League. It was Real Madrid. In the Premier League, it was Arsenal. In the Bundesliga, it was Kaiserslautern. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Serie A, we have Juventus. In Ligue 1, we have Lens. And in the... What am I saying? Champions League. No, that's what I said. Champions League, Real Madrid. Mm-hmm. Len, uh, England, Premier League. Uh, sorry, uh, Arsenal. Germany, Kaiserslautern. Uh, Serie A, Juventus. Uh, what am I missing? La Liga, Barcelona. And Champions the League, last one. No, I said Champions League. Oh, um, yeah. Juve, Juve, Kaiserslautern, uh, yep. Lens, Arsenal, Lens. Barca, Arsenal. Real Madrid. Barca. Real Madrid, yeah, there you go. There you six. go, the five. Or six, yes. So, uh, without anything else left on the docket, my friend, let's hit the closing music. Let's do it. All right, here we go. So, for episode 258 of Low Limit Football, special thanks again to Elijah Newsom and Chris Hennage for joining us on the show tonight and giving us a great, great interview. Next week, we will get you back into league coverage. We're going to talk Champions League. We're going to talk second leg of Copa Libertadores as well. So, for episode 258 of Low Limit Football, I'm Joe Ucello. I'm Roberto Rojas. Thanks for listening, everyone, and good night. Good night.